this will be our last time in, and again, the Resident Alien series. And I wanted to take a second and, and not rush by some of the things that we've seen and some of the things that we've touched on as we walk through these six stories in Daniel. If you remember the stories in Daniel 1, you just have these six stories that are um, kind of these unique narratives. In Daniel 1, if you remember, Daniel and his friends get exiled from Israel and they go into Babylon. And there they're faced with their first kind of test, which is will they eat the food? That's been offered to them and and so lose their identity. And so they're faithful. They don't need the food. And Daniel 2, if you remember, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue. And all the wise men in the kingdom can't figure out what this dream is about. But Daniel, in his wisdom, is able to interpret the dream. He even tells the king what the dream was. In Daniel 3, there's that fiery furnace. Do you remember this? Um, The three friends, they're commanded to bow down for the statue. They don't, so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. But they're saved in the fiery furnace. And then in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar turns into an animal. One of my favorite stories, okay? He, he goes through this kind of insane period in his life. In Daniel 5, the writing on the wall, if you remember this, Wes preached about that. Did a great job in Daniel 5. And then last week, the last two weeks, we looked at Daniel 6, which is Daniel and the lion's den. And you have all these different narratives, and there are these certain themes that kind of run throughout all of the narratives. And I wanted to take a second, before we transition into the visions, kind of the weird part of the book, okay? This is where people take left turns, left and right. So, I mean, buckle up, because we're about to get into some of the weirder stuff in the Bible, Daniel 7 to 12. And before we did that, I wanted to kind of step back and kind of look backwards and say, where have we been? What have we heard? What, what do I think the, the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to us through these, these texts as we've walked through them um, for the past 10 weeks or so? And so we'll do that this morning as kind of an overview. I, I have here on your worship guide three things, I think three lessons, primary lessons from Daniel chapters 1 through 6 for us to take. And so if you're in Daniel, we'll read, I want to read to you again verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. Daniel 1 verses 1 through 7 kind of sets the scene for the whole book and for kind of where we went with the book. Daniel 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of their food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, these Babylonian names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And so this kind of sets the stage for the book of Daniel and for all the stories that we've seen. You've got um, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he goes and he destroys Jerusalem and he rips up out of Israel these kind of royal elite young men, probably 14 or 15 years old at the time. You've got Daniel, some other Jewish people that we don't know about, and then particularly his three friends here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're ripped out of Israel, and they go and they have to live life in Babylon, where they don't know the language and they don't know the culture. And there is this world of temptation around them if they want to continue to follow and worship their God. You see, the Jewish people... um, even today, but, but particularly in the ancient times, they were this very peculiar, kind of weird people. I mean, they had all these practices that no one else understood or did. Okay, you had, I mean, first of all, circumcision, all right, which we won't go into, okay, I won't draw a diagram, anything like that. Needless to say, the rest of the world did not do such things. 
okay, to their bodies. But, but then you had these Jewish males, okay, and they had this, this big kind of marking, this big, I mean, distinguishing feature about them. They, they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. And so when everyone else was, was working and doing things and getting ahead in their life, they did nothing. In fact, they were kind of strict about how nothing they had to do. I mean, so there, there are these rabbinic laws that you could do certain things, but you couldn't spit on dirt. You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit on dirt, because if you spit on dirt, it would make mud, and you use mud to build things, and we're trying not to do anything on the Sabbath. So you had to be careful where you spit, because we're protecting this day. We're not, we're not working on this day. And the rest of the world's looking at that like, what is going on here? I mean, kind of like how we look at Chick-fil-A, okay, closed on Sunday, all right? There's something demonic happening there, okay? There's something not right about that. We need to fix this. Um, the, the Jews had these distinguishing practices, circumcision, Sabbath. Uh, they had these weird, strict dietary laws. I mean, they weren't allowed to eat certain things, and it kept them from doing and being in all the places where people went and the things that people did. But they said, we're, we just don't eat those things. We're not going to eat these things. They were kind of this weird people group. And, and so they're, they're implanted into Babylon, which at the time is kind of the height of success and glamour and wealth in the world. And then all the temptations that come along with that. And the question really that haunts the book of Daniel is, are these, these young Jewish men going to be able to remain faithful to their God? Are they going to continue to worship and follow their God? Or will they fall into all the different temptations and traps and pitfalls that await them in Babylon? They have this kind of unique identity and the question is, will they be able to hold on to it? Will they be able to hold on to it? We looked at Psalm 137, um, which is this poem that the Jews wrote in Babylon where they say, we sit at the shores of Babylon, longingly looking out over towards Jerusalem and wondering how can we sing the songs of Jerusalem in a foreign land? And this is their question. How can we still be the people of God surrounded as we are by a people that don't think like we think and don't act like we act and, and that try to draw us away from who we're supposed to be. And so the first lesson we drew here is we looked at Daniel at their situation in Babylon. So we did this. We said Christians must recover our identity as a peculiar people. Christians must recover our identity as a peculiar people. We drew the link here, and this kind of set the tone for the whole series, between Daniel and his friends living in Babylon and you and I as the church living in the world around us. That just as the Jewish people were supposed to be kind of this weird group of people, right? They were supposed to look different from the world around them. That maybe that's the case with you and I, that as, as Christians, we're supposed to have this distinguished lifestyle. We're supposed to have this, this otherness way of living that separates us out from the world around us. In fact, maybe we are called by the scriptures to see ourselves as exiles, as resident aliens, as people who are surrounded by others who don't believe and do the things we're called to believe and do. And so we, we've seen this throughout Scripture. I want to flip with you to uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. You see Peter kind of drawing on this language. We must recover our identity as a peculiar people. Daniel and his friends, they get to Babylon, and, and they never forget who they are. They don't get assimilated into the culture of Babylon. But they remember, we're, we're Jews. We're the people of God. And in 1 Peter 2, we'll see Peter give instructions very similar um, to the kind of things that were probably going through the mind of Daniel and his friends. In verse 9, we read this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I always want to draw attention to the, the kind of community aspect of this passage, right? Um, so often I think we've been kind of sabotaged in our Christian faith by kind of an individualism. We're really the only thing that matters is me and Jesus and our personal relationship. And through the scriptures, it's all about the we. It's all about you and I, this body, this group of people that you belong to, that there's this real connection to. Once you had no connection to them, Peter says, once you weren't a people, but now you're a people. The same way that the Jewish people in the Old Testament had this strong identity that linked them together. The New Testament calls you and I as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters of Christ, to have as our identity. Transnational, global. Our brothers and sisters in Iraq, our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in Africa, our brothers and sisters in Canada, I know, but they're there. <laughs> our family, our identity. Once we weren't a people, but, but now we've been saved, now we are a people. This actually, if you were to kind of do some analysis of this passage, there's a lot of echoes of Old Testament verses here in this passage. Um, particularly when God first inaugurates the covenant with Israel. He says, you're a chosen people, you're a royal priest, a holy nation, you are my people. And now what was once said to Israel is being said to those who believe in Christ. This is the parallel we draw from the book of Daniel. We need to recover our identity as a peculiar people, as a people group who have been called together to follow God. We keep reading verse 11. I think there's a connection between our connectedness, between our identity as a people, as a community. And then verse 11, he calls them what? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners, travelers, people who who are just passing through, people who aren't from around here. Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus in the passage we read from Scripture this morning in Matthew 5. The outside world will see our deeds and will glorify God. This is what happened inside the book of Daniel. right? Daniel and his friends are faithful. They exhibit the wisdom of God. And then even the pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar, look at it and they start to praise the God of Israel. Say, truly he has wisdom. Truly he has power. Peter says, you're exiles, you're sojourners. The world around us is not necessarily Christian. This has kind of been the, 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 the thing we've been trying to hit on, the thing we've been trying to discover, that you and I perhaps are living in a world not too unlike Daniel's world, where there's a people group inside of a larger people group. That when we look around us, we can't assume that everything we see and hear and interact with is Christian. Now, once we, we might have kind of thought that 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but slowly but surely the world we're starting to experience is a world where it's probably safe to say when you look outside of the church, and by church we mean the people of God, what you're seeing is probably not something that's Christian. This is why God's people are peculiar, right? Because they don't look like the world. Um, so there are two options to us, I think. Either we say the whole world is basically more or less Christian, and so therefore we should look like the rest of the world. There should be no way to distinguish between a Christian and somebody else. Or we say, if we're honest, the world is not more or less Christian. The way it runs, the things it values, the way money's spent, the way relationships are pursued. And so, if we're a Christian, if we are a people, we'll be exiles, we'll be foreigners will look different from the world around us, will be distinguishable. 
I think this is an important, I think, scriptural theme. And then I think also just for the situation we're experiencing and, and will, I think, experience more and more. We used to, if, if you can trace your life back 50 to 100 years in America, okay, I can't. Um, but if you can, um, you'll be familiar with, with the sense that Christianity used to play a much bigger role in the public sphere. I mean, it used to be a much more kind of controlling and dominant compass for, for politics and, and society and things like that. It's no longer. Perhaps... Now you and I need to see ourselves as exiles, as foreigners. As called not to necessarily run the world, but as called to be faithful ourselves. To be a light, to be salt, to be exiles who abstain from the temptations around us so that people would see what we're doing and they'd praise our God. I asked the question before, whose are we, right? This is, I think, getting to the heart of our identity, recovering our identity as God's people. When you are complaining, who's the we behind your complaint? So when I go to churches and listen to sermons and things like that, just because I'm weird like this, this is kind of a question I ask myself, who's the we? Okay, who's the we? I think at most churches, the we is really an I. And so the I, okay, what, what, what the sermon's about, what scripture's about, what, what God is about is one person, individual. This hypothetical individual or the people in front of you, and it's you and God, right? Your relationship with God, how you can pray with God, how you can read the Bible with God, how you can have your personal sins forgiven, those kind of things. If there is a we, it's usually a group of people, so like young people, millennials, or, or older people, or things like that. Or the we, so, so what's being talked about in the sermon would be like a nation, Right? So we need to get back to the Bible. Well, the question I always ask is, well, who's the we? I mean, is the we the country? Is the we everyone who's this age group? Or is the we the church? I mean, even when you complain, right? I mean, what are you complaining about? Now, obviously, I'm not talking about FCQ. There's nothing to complain about here. But, but the body of Christ, right? Not just one single church, but the church, right? The community of believers. So what if instead of, right, I think here's the shift. Instead of complaining Oh, yeah, well, we can't legislate, you know, homosexuality is a sin, or, or we can't legislate that abortion's illegal. What if instead of complaining about those kind of things, the shift took in our brain, and, and we started doing this. Man, it really bugs me that the church is not better at living out marriage. If I could change something, what's really under my skin right now is that the church doesn't shine the light of marriage bright enough. If we could get back to working on marriage and really making it the beautiful thing that God gave it to us, that would really make my day. Yeah. Or, man, what if... The church really started to love orphans like it's supposed to, and really started adopting kids like it's supposed to, and really started showing the world what it means to get pregnant, what it means to have children, why we have children, how we take care of children, those kind of things. So instead of, instead of I mean, you see the shift there, the dramatic shift. Instead of getting upset because our congressmen and women aren't doing certain things, we get upset because the body of Christ, this peculiar people, is not being as salty or as bright as they should be. And instead needs to figure out, hey, we're in a, a foreign world here. We can't wait for everybody else to jump on board. We've been called. We've been brought out of darkness into light. We're a peculiar people, and so we should act like one. I think we need to look around us and realize that maybe we can assume that everything around us is Christian. In fact, maybe the more we discern, the more we'll see there's actually a big radical gap between what Christ calls us to, the life Christ calls us to, and then what the world conditions us to. Maybe even our nation conditions us to. But the way we spend our money, with the way we treat people, the way we talk to people. I teach high school, if there's one thing that I could transplant into someone's mind, right? I mean, if, there's, if there was something that I could, with some kind of special technology, okay, like inject into the brains of all my <laughs> students, and it's just there, and it's just over, it would be this. It would be that it's okay for other people to do other things, but it's not okay for you if you're a Christian, 
There's something peculiar about you. We, we talked about the, um, I mentioned the very first week, 10 weeks ago, um, a, a Jewish uh, family was overheard at a coffee shop saying that they have to tell this to their kids a lot. Because again, they have this distinctive lifestyle. Okay, they have to wear yarmulkes. Their friends on the street don't have to wear yarmulkes, right? I mean, imagine the conversation. Mom, Dad, why, why do I have to wear this hat? And they have to continually tell their kids, it's okay for other people to do this, but it's not okay for you to do this. You have a different story. You have a different God. You have a different future. I think you and I need to recover that, that, that sense that, that it might be okay for the rest of the world to go do those things. They don't know what we know. They haven't been saved like we've been saved. But we have a different story. We have a different God. We have a different future. We have a different hope for the world. So we look different. We act different. We're this weird, peculiar people. People should see us and say, you're not from around here, are you? I mean, did you grow up here? Did you? No, because we're from, we're traveling, right? I mean, we're exiles. This is not our home. We remember our identity. If you flip one more place to me, uh, with me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, you see a similar theme here, Philippians 3, verse 20. Paul says this, it's just to your left a, a few pages. But our citizenship, as Christians, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even subject all things to himself. This is our citizenship. Where we belong is not here. It's wrapped up not in our money and our stuff and our relationships here and now, but it's wrapped up in Christ, he says in Colossians 3. Our, our future's hidden with Christ. One day we'll be revealed with him. It's in heaven. That's where we belong. That's our citizenship. It's with God. And so we, we don't act like citizens of this world. We, we have different values, different customs, different things that we do. Dale and his friends, they never forget the identity that they have, that they're this weird kind of group of people. And, and kind of maybe one of the things I want us to get from Daniel 1 through 6 is that, that it's okay to be different. It's okay to be weird. In fact, if we can agree the world around us is not more or less Christian, the best way to know that we are Christian is if we look a little bit different. Is if we have different values. Is if we talk differently and act differently, <clears throat> love differently, forgive differently. If we're this peculiar people. So flip back with me. Might be too late, but keep a finger in Daniel, okay? Flip back with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. So, so the first point, I think the first lesson that we've seen is that, that you and I are resident aliens. We're, we're this peculiar group of people. And Daniel 1, I want to read to you verse 8, okay? In verse 8, this kind of sets the scene again for all of the book of Daniel, for the different things we've seen. <laughs> But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel, from day one, and we'll see this with his friends as well, was committed to not losing his identity, to not defiling himself, to not, whatever he, he does or is faced with in Babylon, he's committed to not being assimilated into their culture. To not losing his identity and his faithfulness as a follower of God. You see this throughout the book. He sets the stage here with a single-minded focus that no matter what comes my way, I will be faithful. I will not defile myself. So when Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, when they're told to bow down to a statue, they say, that's idolatry, and we don't do that. It might be okay for everyone else in Babylon to worship the statue, but it's not okay for us. Because we worship one God. And so we're not going to make a big deal about it, but we're not going to bow down to the statue. And even if that means you want to throw us into a furnace, we won't bow down. As they feel the heat of the furnace on their back, they say, 
We won't defile ourselves. This mindset is set in stone inside of them. And in Daniel 6, says Daniel himself is faced with this, this law about not praying to any other guy except for the king, and he continues to pray to his God. And the king says, there's a lion's den right there if you want to keep praying to your God. Daniel says, I'm not going to defile myself by praying to you. It's just not a, a choice for me. It's just not an option for me. I will remain pure. I won't be assimilated into the culture around me. I think the second thing we learn from these stories in Daniel is we Christians must practice faithfulness in a world of temptation. We must practice faithfulness in a world of temptation. This takes wisdom. The, the Hebrew word is hokmah. Okay, it takes the ability to discern between what is allowed and what is not allowed, which is not always clear. You see this in the book of Daniel. There are certain things Daniel will do that the Babylonians do and certain things that he won't. He kind of tries to discern where that line would be, where he would be defiled if he did this or that action. So Daniel learns the language. Daniel learns the literature. Daniel interprets dreams. Daniel works for the king. But then Daniel chooses this, this food issue to take a stand on for whatever reason, Daniel discerns his mind. And scholars argue over this. We don't really know why the food thing was that big of a deal to him. Later on, he's actually eating food. So that kind of takes away some of our theories. But for whatever reason, Daniel and his wisdom throughout the book of Daniel, he's seen as this kind of wise character, given God's wisdom, says, this would defile me. I will not cross this line. And when his three friends are called to bow down, they say, this would defile me. I won't cross this line. When Daniel's asked to pray to the king, he says, this will defile me. I won't cross this line. But it's not always, it's not always black and white. Sometimes there's this gray area, which is why I'm not able to give you a list of rules for how you should be faithful in America, right? I can't give you the four TV shows you can't watch, and then the four TV shows you can watch. It's just not as simple as that. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Are there some TV shows you probably shouldn't watch? Sure. Are there some TV shows that, that probably you can watch that others maybe say you shouldn't watch? I mean, Sure. But it's not something that I can set as a rule for you or for all Christians in America, or even sometimes I'm smart enough to set for myself, right? This takes discernment. It takes prayer. It takes attentiveness to the Spirit. It takes a community of people who often know me better than I know myself, where I can listen to their advice and their wisdom spoken into my life. And I do write down here on the, the worship guide, practice. We practice faithfulness. It's an intentional thing. I think it's a virtue. It's something we build up over time. We saw in Daniel 6, in verse 10, Daniel goes in as he does every day to pray three times. He has this, this life of spiritual discipline built behind his, his status as a spiritual giant. He's prayed and prayed and prayed. He's prayed up. By the time this, this can't command, this law comes down to him, he's able to obey unflinchingly because he's been doing this for his entire life. He's built into these... Um, he's built these habits, these patterns into his life. And, and then one of the more maybe unnerving parts of the stories we see in Daniel is their ability and willingness to sacrifice, even if it means their life. I mean, when they discern that line between their, their identity as, as God's people or being defiled, they're willing to say, kill me. I mean, I'm not going to cross this line. This is unnerving. I mean, when I compare myself to these stories, okay... I mean, there's this, there's this big gap. I think that you feel this too, right? When we see these martyr stories. And we can talk a big game. I can preach a big game, right, too? But when it comes down to it, oftentimes, I mean, defile myself so I don't die. I mean, I'd be willing to defile myself for five bucks, right? I mean, for, for the next meal, right? I mean, we're kind of oftentimes faithless people. We have a lot of practice to go to get here. But Daniel and his, his friends are so committed to being faithful in a foreign, tempta uh, temptation-filled environment 
that they're willing to say, I mean, you can kill us, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And this is before Christ defeats death, right? I mean, the scripture would say that, that in Colossians 2, what happens on the cross is Christ kind of mocks death for us. It's kind of this embarrassing thing where the deepest, darkest power that the world's had is kind of exposed in front of us all. That death really is not the end of the story. That, that you and I are, are victorious. This is triumphalism to early Christianity. We've won. What, you're going to kill us? That's cute. <laughs> I mean, we're just going to come back again. We're going to rise from the dead. And there's nothing you can do to us. You see this, um, again, in, in the, the, the martyrs, Daniel's three friends, they say, you're trying to play Nebuchadnezzar, you're trying to play life or death, the God of life or death, but you're not the God of life or death. We worship the God who gives life and who brings death. We worship the God who will raise us again, and he's the one who will save us. They're willing to be faithful and able to be faithful in a world of temptation. It's not always easy. It's not always clear. But it's something that you and I are called to do as God's people, to discern it. I think sometimes we need to be de-educated or, or like we need to detox off of our surroundings. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we have become so used to thinking that certain things are Christian attitudes and habits that it's hard for us to step back and, and read the scriptures and go, well, maybe that's not. I mean, maybe that's a part of Babylon and that's not a part of the Christian community. That's not a part of what the life that we've been called to live. We need to kind of detox off of this. In some ways, maybe Daniel has an advantage over us, right? He has this firm foundation in Israel before he gets to Babylon. I would imagine if Daniel was born in Babylon, his struggles might be a little bit different. The temptations he faces might be a little deeper and stronger, such as the case perhaps with you and I. And then the third thing I want us to see here from the book of Daniel. This has been throughout all six stories we've seen in the book of Daniel so far. We haven't hit on it a whole lot, though, but it's a good transition into the visions that we'll look at starting on September 8th. So here's the lesson. Despite present appearances, despite present appearances, God is in control. Despite present appearances, God is in control. If you go to Daniel 1, look at verse 2 with me. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is an interesting way to interpret this historical event. The king of Babylon would have said, My might and my strength gave you into my hand. I just crushed you. Like the little cockroach you are. I destroyed your whole army, took your temple away. The Jews look at that situation and they go, If it happened, God allowed it to happen. The Lord gave... I mean, sometimes we read these stories and these interpretations of historical events and we don't acknowledge the remarkableness of them. If anything were to prove to the Israelites that God was not in control or had abandoned them, it would be their country being destroyed, their temple being ransacked. I mean, in ancient times, this is what that stood for. When you would go into that temple, it would be, this king's God has defeated your God. That's why we're destroying your temple. That's why your riches in your temple are coming to this God's temple. He owns them now. But the Jews have such a strong belief in God's sovereignty that even that, they say, has to be part of his plan. If you pulled the curtain up, there's something happening behind the scenes here. God gave us into your hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't, we don't, I think oftentimes step back and go, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, I don't think I'd be able to make that. Uh, you know, I don't think I'd be able to interpret history that way just in, in my own kind of wisdom. God gave them into their hands despite what it seems like God's in control. If you look at verse 9, um, Daniel asked to, to not eat the fruit of the king, and God gave Daniel favor, compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In verse 17, as for these four youths, after the test, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God is the primary actor on this scene in Daniel chapter 1. If you flip to chapter 2 with me and look at verse 20, this is after Daniel receives the wisdom to interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had. He says this in praise. 
He answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Notice what he says about God. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He removes kings and sets up kings. We often, I think, operate with a um, kind of default deistic view of God, where God's not really that involved in the dirty, messy, grimy details of our lives. But the, the world of the scriptures is a world where God is pretty intimately involved. Where, where the scriptures say, if that king's on the throne, it's because the God of Israel wanted him on the throne. If the king's not on the throne, it's because the God of Israel didn't want him on the throne. Despite what it seems like, despite the fact that God's original intention for creation has gone off track, there's still this master plan. There's still this promise, this covenant that's made to creation. Hope is never lost mm-hmm. in the economy of God. Mm-hmm. He's always in control. He's always got a plan working. There's always this divine logic that runs behind the scenes. This logic of covenant love towards his creation to rescue and to redeem all things. God is in control despite present experiences. If you look at Daniel 3, verse 16. Daniel 3, chapter 16. This is the famous speech of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, they can feel the fire on their back. And this is what they say to the king who says, Bow down to my statue. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We won't even acknowledge your request. If this be so, if you throw us into the fire... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Again, we often look at this text in hindsight, knowing that they're saved, right? And it kind of takes the thrill out of the story for us. Oh, well, they knew there was going to be an angel in there, right? And it was going to turn into this cute VeggieTales cartoon. And so, I mean, of course, if you and I were in the same situation, we'd do that as well. But imagine you don't know those things. Imagine you think very well, it could be a chance you're going to feel the fire and you're going to die. And you don't know how this all turns out. You've, your whole country's been destroyed. Your temple's been ransacked. There's no sign of anything. But that single-mindedly said, I'm not going to defile myself. Even if I get thrown in the fire, my God's in control. And sure enough, they get thrown in the fire and they meet an angel there who rescues them. In chapter 4, if you look at verse 17, there's this refrain over and over again in chapter 4. In verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Here it is. To the end, so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. If you look again in verse 25, you see the same refrain. That you will be driven from among men. This is Nebuchadnezzar's punishment. He's going to turn to this animal. Your dwelling will be with the beast. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You'll be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. Here it is. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Once again, you see this in verse 32. You will be driven from the land. You will eat grass like an ox. Again, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then in verse, uh, chapter 6, the very end of this section of narratives that we've read, if you look in verse 26, there's this section of praise given by Darius. Again, as he sees the good works of God's people and then glorifies their Father in heaven, he says this, He is a living God, the God of Daniel, 
enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, his kingdom will have no end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders. He saves from the power of the lions. Daniel and his friends, they were able to stay faithful because they were grounded in this truth that God was always in control, that their primary responsibility was to him, was faithfulness to him, obedience to him. Exiles, I think, need this encouragement because sometimes the world around us can seem chaotic. Sometimes it can seem like like maybe God doesn't have this thing. Maybe we took a left turn somewhere and, and God's kind of jumped off the ship and said, well, I didn't expect that, so good luck. And exiles go, no, no, it's all in his hands still. No, our, our primary responsibility is still to obey him. Despite what it might seem like around us, despite the evidence given to us, we have faith, we trust, we believe. And we, we realize our only responsibility is to, to turn to him, to obey him. Despite when our, our kid goes wayward, despite the best of our parenting abilities, despite when our, our marriage starts to crumble, despite when, when this relationship that we're in starts to spiral out, despite when we can't see what tomorrow will bring, despite the feelings that sometimes we struggle with, despite the personal struggles that haunt us and the demons that rattle around inside of our minds, exiles step back and they say at the end of the day, he's in control. So we're faithful to him and we follow him and we, we focus ourselves on him. We ground ourselves on what he's done for us. No matter how bad it seems, there's this beauty, there's this divine logic behind what's happening in the world. And you see this most clearly on the cross. If you had to pick a time in history where, where things got as ugly as they could possibly get, it would probably, I'm guessing, be when God himself dies. Which is what Christians historically have said happens on the cross. God has become a human being in Jesus the Word, the eternal God, takes on flesh, this perfect union. Everything that happens to Jesus the man happens to God himself. Jesus is fully God. And he dies at the hands of the people he created. And there's no darker moment than that. There's no, there's no more darker stain on our history than that moment. But at the same time, this is what's crazy about it. It's the most beautiful moment in all of history. If at any moment you thought that God would be out of control, it would be when he is killed, right? It would be when he comes and is murdered. But if there was any moment when God was in more control, it would be when he died to, to defeat death, when he died to free his people, when he died to prepare a spirit to come to them, when he died to forgive their sins. The most ugly moment in history, in the most beautiful moment, they come to mingle together in God's in divine logic. And so like Daniel and his friends, we, we try to, to practice these patterns that would, would help us, enable us to, to be faithful. And one of these, I think, is this time where we come to the table, like we'll do in a minute, and we'll remember that's been defeated, our sins have been forgiven. We'll remember that our identity is found in Christ and his work on our behalf. We'll remember that, that we're united as a people group, called to be peculiar, called to help each other be peculiar. That the ugliest moment is also the beautiful, most beautiful moment in God's, God's work in history. We come to remember that we were not once a people, but now we're a people. 
we were once in darkness, but now we're in light. And that our, our primary responsibility Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday is to be faithful, to be peculiar, to stay true to our identity found at the table. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for this time that we've had this morning to worship. We pray that you would bless us as we continue to read your scriptures. We, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. We pray that they would continue to encourage us to faithfulness. They would encourage us to draw nearer and nearer to your life and to your heart, Father, that we would be empowered by your spirit to be faithful and to know you deeply. We pray that we would be empowered by your spirit to discern the temptations around us and to discern the, the seductions of the world around us that, that often draw us away from who we're called to be in you. We pray that you would empower us as a people group, Father, to live as a community, to live uh, these interconnected lives where we build up and encourage each other as we seek after you. And all of this, Father, we pray that you would, through your spirit, direct our attention to the Son, to his death on our behalf, to his resurrection, bring life. We pray that our identity, who we are, would be bound up in him and him alone. And it's in the Son's name that all God's people said,